supreme exalted universal leader descendants of the kings and queens the overseer the overlord cream of the crop creme de la creme in the spring of 1483 two boys the sons and heirs of king edward the fourth were placed into the tower of london as the elder edward v awaited his coronation their uncle and newly appointed guardian richard of gloucester claimed he had placed them there for their safety however only one month later he suddenly announced that there had been a change of plans and he himself would instead be crowned over the young heir that summer richard of gloucester becomes richard the third ruling England over a brief two-year period before being defeated at the Battle of Bosworth by Henry Tudor's men in a rebellion, launching the Tudor dynasty and putting an end to the War of the Roses. People had seen the two princes that summer of 1483, practicing archery and playing on the lawn of the tower where they had been placed months earlier. But then their house servants were dismissed, the two boys were moved deeper inside the tower to a lower-level compound. And by the fall of 1483, no one ever saw them again. Over the last 500 years, the tale of the doomed princes in the tower has become infamous within history and pop culture. In 1878, the most iconic and well-known depiction of the princes was painted by artist Sir Jean Everett Millet. Dressed in all black, clutching tightly to one another, looking worrisome to their left and right, beautiful tendrils of blonde hair, with cherubic, pale English faces, forever preserved in their youth, portraying their innocence, a childhood stolen, victims of the cruel men and ambitious regime around them. If you're anything like me, you first encountered the story of the two princes in William Shakespeare's play, Richard III. Shakespeare famously writes the king, their uncle, as a hunchback, sharp-toothed villain, plotting and scheming his way to the English throne, waiting in the shadows for his moment to come into absolute power. Shortly before this, it was Sir Thomas More, author of Utopia, and the subject of the second episode in this series, who penned the first historical writings about the two boys in the tower. Moore was the first person on record to point the finger at Richard III, pulling from credible resources, including his own father, and writing began in 1515, with revisions made in the late 1520s. It was also Moore who added a specific heartbreaking detail, that the bodies of the two murdered young boys were buried at the bottom of a staircase within the tower walls and thus igniting a 500-year-old whodunit mystery that has captivated us for centuries now. While both of these men wrote under the Tudor regime, it's important to always keep that in mind when considering their accounts. Developments did come to light only a decade ago through a remarkable archaeological discovery, solidifying at least one of these infamous Shakespearean claims about primary suspect Richard III. And so, did Richard murder his own two nephews in order to successfully usurp the regime and secure the English crown? Or was he a character manipulated by playwrights and historical records in an effort to further support their own claim and weigh into power? Or did the two boys actually survive 
and were sent to the countryside to live out their lives under false identities? Over the years, this mystery has captivated amateurs and scholars alike, with people falling on both sides of this polarizing argument. What we do know is that two boys were placed in the tower for protection by their uncle Richard, following the sudden and unexpected death of their father, King Edward IV, in an effort to protect the newly found power that fell onto the 12-year-old Edward's shoulders. But power is only as meaningful as one's ability to wield it. And kings are only kings so long as those around them choose to obey them. Whether you believe in a cunning family murder plot, influential Tudor propaganda, or daring escapes to rule England, the moral reminder here is that kings are only as strong as the believers rallied around them, and that even kings can be taken down by rumor just as well as by sword and sometimes by both at the same time. We likely will never come upon a definitive answer to satisfy our hunger for the truth. But I also think that there's more to this story, the fate of the two princes in the tower and their villainous Uncle Richard III, than the surface level reveals. History is written by the victors, after all. It was the end of medieval times, a period of kill or be killed, and medieval politics are not for the faint of heart. So, with the ceiling crashing down on him and the transfer of power within arm's reach, Richard III was faced with few choices. I'm Ann Bergstead, and this is Off With Her Head, a history podcast that uncovers the stories behind infamous and historical executions of noble figures from the past. Listener discretion is advised. The princes in the tower were not actually princes as history and pop culture have now famously coined them. Young Edward the Eldest of the two boys was born on the 2nd of November, 1450. And by the way, he shares a birthday with yours truly. And at the time of his disappearance at age 12, he was technically Edward V, King of England. While nine-year-old Richard was a duke, young Richard of Shrewsbury, Duke of York. But for the sake of clarity on an audio podcast, I will be referring to them mainly as the two princes. And this story begins many years earlier with their parents, King Edward IV and his queen Elizabeth Woodville. Now, The War of the Roses is a deeply complex and vast topic. Entire books have been devoted to this subject, and here is not the place to break that down. However, for historical context, all you need to know is that England has been in the grips of a hundred-year-long civil war, later coined the War of the Roses, and with two sides, the Yorks, who carry a white rose, and the Lancastrians, red rose. Edward IV has two brothers, the older George, Duke of Clarence, and baby brother Richard of Gloucester. Think the three brothers Michael, Sonny, and Fredo Corleone in The Godfather, of which this family served as the primary inspiration for Mario Puzo's 1969 novel. Elizabeth Woodville was considered a commoner, despite her mother Jaquetta being a noble and her father, Rivers, a lord. 
She was already 28 years old and widowed with two young sons by the time she crossed paths with the young, dashing, super tall, and sexually charged 22-year-old Edward. The two secretly wed, which was certainly not tradition at the time, and this marriage between Edward IV and Elizabeth Woodville serves as a primary fracture within this family that will eventually set things off, because people of the court initially saw the Woodvilles as a scheming social climbing bunch. Back at court, Warwick, aka the Kingmaker, but we'll get into that in another episode, is furious when he finds out about their secret union. Elizabeth Woodville brings in this massive family, all of these relatives, and after Warwick has spent a considerable amount of time trying to forge together a marriage in alignment with his political agenda, and Edward marries this commoner woman in secret behind his back? However, Elizabeth is very alert to her husband's court. Her husband blows money left and right while she is able to mind the finances more carefully. Her brother, Antony Woodville, is a competitive sportsman with a reputation as the greatest jouster in England, and he's like an all-around cool guy for his time. 1470, it all begins to spiral as Warwick and Edward's older brother, George, align together and turn on the king and his wife. Younger brother Richard sticks with him, and they flee court, receiving Burgundian support they are able to return and stand up to Warwick in his alliance with the French. He is killed, that's medieval battle for you, and of course George of Clarence yet again switches sides and is back with his little brother King Edward IV. Meanwhile, the previous king, the mad mentally unstable Henry VI, has been locked away in the Tower of London, both a palace and prison at this point, having completely lost his mind, and then is disposed of, officially, no doubt by the orders of Edward IV. Edward tries to solve this fracture that's been created through their marriage by giving George his lands in the Midlands, and Richard gets installed as the ruler of the North. However, George switches alliances yet again, this is quite literally the third time, and in 1478 ends up executed in the Tower. As legend goes, drowned in a barrel of Malmsey wine. This leaves Richard unchallenged, the only remaining brother to the king. Five years later, during Easter of 1483, Edward IV suddenly became ill. We don't know what happened to him. He catches a fever and dies very quickly, within a few weeks. People did not have time to prepare their networks or balance things out. He dies suddenly on the 9th of April, leaving behind a wealth of children, including his two eldest sons, Edward and Richard, who are 12 and 9. And also, I apologize, as literally everyone during this time period shares the same names. And immediately, problems began here. In Edward IV's will, he had stated his faithful younger brother, Richard, would be left protector of his sons, essentially serving as de facto king until Edward, now Edward V, is of age. He was the logical sense after all, the most senior royal in the family. He has a lifetime of military service under his belt, and has remained completely devoted this whole time. And notably, there are two people absent from the court when Edward IV suddenly dies. 
the young princes and their two uncles, Anthony Woodville, a.k.a. Lord Rivers, and Richard of Gloucester, who's up in the north near York. As for the two princes themselves, young Richard is with his mother in London, while Edward is at Ludlow Castle with his uncle, the Queen's brother, Anthony Woodville. It's the spring of 1483, and Edward IV is dead, leaving behind his queen, Elizabeth Woodville, their children, and in particular their two eldest sons, the young Prince Edward and Prince Richard. Whatever the cause of his death, his eldest son is now King Edward V. The Woodvilles, who have always been in conflict with Richard, choose not to wait for his arrival and instead announce ahead of the London Council that a coronation for the young new king will proceed immediately. The announcement and exclusion of Richard no doubt stung him deeply. It is a move designed to essentially cut him out. While we can't know for sure what he was thinking at that moment, my guess is that he thought, I am a celebrated soldier with royal blood. Not to mention the late king's final wishes as per his will are that I become de facto king and protector until the young boy becomes of age. The council meets and declares they will have a coronation for the young prince on the 5th of May. Because at age 12, he is still three years too young to rule without a protector to oversee his ruling. Was Richard planning to always usurp the crown? Certainly the plot of Shakespeare's Richard III suggests he was. An incredibly conniving and cunning man who has been planning this for ages. Well, actually, in reality... He doesn't seem to have a lot of long-term strategies. The calculated movements and choices seem to unfold that spring after Edward's sudden death. And in fact, the only real evidence we have for this case is Richard's behavior in the ten or so weeks following his brother's death. The Woodville family, however, are the opposite of ruthless. They certainly don't anticipate how things could possibly unfold or that Richard could possibly try to usurp the young future king for his own benefit. Also, Edward IV may likely have not considered any of this since his death arrived so suddenly. We don't know for sure, and all we have to go off of are famous medieval sources, written letters and correspondence. So, it's Richard who writes to Anthony Woodville, now referred to as Lord Rivers since he's been anointed, to instigate a meeting. And the young king's two uncles agree to a rendezvous at Northampton, where they'll hash this all out. The idea is that Lord Rivers will bring young Prince Richard with him, and Richard of Gloucester will come down from the north to meet them. On the side, Richard is also setting up to meet with the Duke of Buckingham. Now, Buckingham has been Edward IV's ward. He's a sleek careerist, a landowner, and has a big place in Bracket slightly on the outskirts of the regime. He has a very tenuous claim. He's a part of the world, but slightly on the outside. He's very ambitious. He was also brought up with Richard since childhood. The question here is, as Richard is heading south, what is he thinking? How to get his hands on the crown? How to protect his own position? Whatever it is, it's driven by fear but also greed and ambition, like most of these players within the regime. What we do know for a fact, though, is that on April 29th, they all meet up at Stony Stratford, 
the Woodvilles head into a meeting with what was described as a cheery and happy-faced Richard, while Buckingham runs late. And at the end of the evening, it's only Richard and Buckingham who are left, and they stay up all night through the next morning, hold up in private dialogue together. That very next morning, Lord Rivers, Anthony Woodville, you remember him, the uncle, tutor and guardian protector to the young prince, future King Richard, and Sir Richard Grey, now this is one of two of Woodville's sons from her first widowed marriage, they wake up and find out that they are surrounded and then arrested for treason by order of who else? Richard of Gloucester. If you ask me, these charges are reaching at best. Lord Rivers was a very effective and good guardian. So when Richard goes to tell the young prince, Edward V, that his beloved guardian has been dismissed for being a traitor who was discovered to be plotting against them, he goes on to tell him, don't worry, it's fine. He himself is now going to be his guardian look after him. And Edward V says no. He adored Rivers and was shocked, angry, and perhaps slightly scared. But what choice did he have at this point? Now this is a key moment that changes things. This young boy has grown up listening to his other uncle, Lord Rivers, and essentially sides with him. When his other uncle, Uncle Richard, comes to tell him of Rivers' arrest and this sudden treason charge, he does not want to accept it. He rejects it. The problem is he sides with his beloved uncle. This is a major problem for Richard, as the lessons of history teach him. Once a king comes of age, it's very, very bad for the protector, especially if there are rival factors. So it makes sense, based on the upbringing he had, that he would come to the realization that little boys do grow up to become men, and men can rally supporters and raise armies to battle over their cause. Richard III grew up during the bloody and brutal War of the Roses, and no doubt saw these thematics in action all around him. And with young King Edward V finally in his possession, Richard officially steps into the role of Lord Protector. So Richard has taken possession of young Edward, his nephew, despite his reluctance. When word of this gets back to his mother, Elizabeth Woodville, she reads the room and heads straight to sanctuary at Westminster with her remaining kids, including the younger Prince Richard. And remember, her brother, Anthony Lord Rivers, has been arrested and Richard has taken her 12-year-old. Richard takes this info back to his council in London, where he tells them to condemn Rivers as a traitor, and the council rightfully demands to know where the evidence is. It's the same response that Edward V has stated when he claims that he loves Rivers and wants to remain by his side. However, despite all of that, the council kind of goes along with Richard since he is the presumed guardian after all, and it's about a month-long period where two crucial steps are taken within this time frame. One of which is to postpone Edward V's coronation to the 22nd of June, and two, that the two princes should be lodged in the tower. 
Now, something to note here, it's not as ominous back then as what hindsight tells us today. The tower at this point is a royal residence and also a prison. It's the main royal complex in London. So while today we may understand this location to be completely different, especially under the Tudor regime where they really wielded it for power, back in the 15th century it served those two primary needs. So anyway, the scary thing for Edward V is that he's cut off from his mother and the Woodvilles, his extended family, and is all of a sudden surrounded by Richard's men. His preferred uncle and guardian is in captivity at the mercy of Richard's guards. But at this point, he doesn't think he's in danger for his life. I mean, why would he? In the days leading up to this London council meeting, Richard has been suggesting that he could be king and sort of knock out the Woodvilles to a man called Lord Hastings, who has been a deeply devoted loyalist to deceased King Edward IV. He somewhat suggests that Hastings can be number two, and because Hastings is so loyal to Edward IV and therefore his sons, he likely responded to Richard's remarks with, no, I think Edward V should be king. Richard realizes at this point that he's going to have to take out all of these people if he wants to claim the throne, and Hastings is certainly a man you're going to want to take out if you're Richard. On the morning of June 14, 1483, Richard called an urgent council meeting. Think of it like a modern-day board meeting. Naturally amongst those attending, Lord Hastings, of course. Richard starts by pulling the same trick he pulled on Rivers just two months earlier at Northampton. He warms up the room, appearing relaxed and merry. He even suggests that they send out for some strawberries. Then he suddenly excuses himself. When he re-enters, his mood has changed. Richard throws up his arms and declares the queen has been plotting against him and that he's a victim of her sorcery. I've been bewitched, as depicted in Shakespeare's Richard III play, basically accusing his sister-in-law, the queen, of being a witch. Then he points to Hastings and accuses him of being in cohorts with her. Richard signals to the guards who rush in on cue and drag Hastings outside directly onto the court's lawn and cut off his head right then and there, a completely illegal execution. Hastings had hesitated at the idea of Richard claiming the throne, and he was executed for it. Richard has shown his hand, his intentions. Now, there was no going back. Now, sidebar, for devoted Ricardians, these are members who make up the 20th century founded Richard III Society. This is one move that, despite what anyone can say, looks really bad. This was an illegal and swift execution, sent any trial, ordered directly by Richard, of one of the most distinguished and respected noblemen in the country one of Edward IV's closest lifelong friends. Richard comes to sanctuary to tell Elizabeth Woodville that he's going to safely transport her other son, young Richard, to be with his brother as he awaits his pending coronation inside the tower. Elizabeth Woodville hands her son over to join his older brother in the tower, and presumably 
She does this because she thinks the coronation is going ahead and thinks, well, Richard is determined to be their protector anyway. He wants to be the big man, plus it's what my husband wanted for him to be his protector. And the coronation is still on for the 22nd of June, so... But as soon as Richard has possession of the little boy, he switches. And actually, the coronation is going to be postponed until November. By this point, the streets of London are buzzing. What ends up happening, though, is on the 22nd of June, Richard arranges a public sermon to be delivered by Ralph Shaw, and he declares that deceased King Edward IV was actually illegitimate anyway. He was a bastard. Richard orchestrates all of this, accusing his own mother, Cecily Neville, of being a whore and sleeping around on his father. He claims she was unfaithful and points to the appearances of three brothers. Edward IV and George of Clarence look nothing like our father, but I do, he proclaims. The sermon also states Edward IV wasn't properly married to Elizabeth Woodville in the first place, because there had been a pre-contract arrangement for Edward IV to marry someone else prior to a secret marriage to Elizabeth. By the way, this said woman in question had already died years ago anyway, but alas. Not only does Richard claim through this delivered sermon on the day of Edward V's originally planned coronation that his brother is a bastard, but also that both of his young nephews currently inside the tower are bastards too. Therefore, this whole thing is a sham, and they're all illegitimate to rule anyway. Richard is desperate at this point, willing to say or do anything to usurp his own family in order to get that crown. He has guards recruit townsfolk and other men shout their support of him in the streets. It all moves incredibly fast. On the 25th of June, the princes are formally declared illegitimate. Lord Rivers and Sir Richard Grey are also executed by Richard's order, and he basically resuscitates old rumors that were perpetuated by their old family enemies. And with that, Richard is in. On the 6th of July, that summer, Richard of Gloucester is crowned King of England and becomes Richard III. People turn up, but lots of people don't. Elizabeth Woodville certainly doesn't show up, and interestingly enough, those two young princes, nephew to the new king, are not there. There had been very public and known plans for specifically young Edward to attend the coronation. They had ordered him custom clothes, custom shoes, and spurs. So it appeared as though he was planning to attend his uncle's coronation, but he's nowhere in sight on the day. And at this point, the two princes in the tower themselves leave the story. They just vanish. As per eyewitness accounts, we do know that that summer they are seen playing in the gardens on the lawn of the Tower Royal Complex. They're also seen practicing archery on that same lawn. There's talk of their faces spotted behind the windows, like ghosts gazing out. But at some point that summer, their household servants were all dismissed. And by the fall of 1483, 
no one ever saw either of the two boys again. So the key question is, what happens to them? We can't have absolute certainty on this. We will not definitively solve it, but we can look at the overwhelming evidence and motive, and that points to their uncle, Richard III, as you know already, the brand new King of England. Now, there are other proposed candidates, usually perpetuated by Ricardians trying to rehabilitate Richard III's image, Lord Buckingham, for example. The man who served Richard and was in private dialogue with him up all night in April, secretly discussing something. But the key is who had access to the tower. Richard III is the king. His men control everything. You can't just waltz into the tower and access the two princes without him knowing. To recall the 1951 fiction novel by Josephine Taze, The Daughter of Time, protagonist Alan Grant, not to be confused with Jurassic Park paleontologist Dr. Alan Grant, lies holed up in a hospital with a broken leg, longing to solve the Princes in the Tower mystery, and its primary candidate is Lord Buckingham. But again, no one gains access without the king, so even in that proposition, Richard would have have to been behind it. Get rid of the alternative candidates. That's what dictators, kings, and emperors have done throughout thousands of years of human history. So it would make sense for Richard and his men to make the decision in order to keep his power intact and secure. It seemingly came down to this, and Richard had a decision to make. The problem for Richard is that the people of England are beginning to talk. And the talk grows louder overseas in France, spreading throughout the continent swiftly. And counter-support begins to rise for Henry Tudor, who has a somewhat cloudy claim to the throne through his mother, Margaret Beaufort, through the Lancastrians. And they are saying the two princes have been murdered. Traditionally, if that were a rumor and only a rumor, it would be wise for the king to produce his nephews, show them alive and well, parade them through the streets of London, or whatever. But he doesn't do this. Richard never produces them as proof that these rumors are just rumors. He can't. And why is that? His only other solution is to try and deflect blame onto others. And the perfect opportunity presents itself when Lord Buckingham, who hasn't been rewarded as he deemed fit, suddenly switches and joins in on a rebellion that backs Henry Tudor and aims to bring him, the only conceivable Lancastrian claim, to the throne. If Buckingham did have a hand in their murder, he seems to have regretted it because in the tense months following Richard's coronation, he joins this rising rebellion. This mission starts by aiming to free the young King Edward V from the tower, but halfway through switches to supporting the relatively unknown Welshman Henry Tudor. However, this revolt is defeated. Lord Buckingham is captured, taken to Salisbury in a courtyard, and executed. Off with his head, so much for Buckingham, Richard III exclaims in Shakespeare's play of the same name. So Lord Buckingham has died a traitor, 
a perfect opportunity for Richard to divert the blame onto him. But he doesn't. There are also a few less plausible candidates, particularly amongst the Ricardians, and one is Henry Tudor himself, or his mother, Margaret Beaufort, though it should be noted that the Beaufort suggestion didn't even historically exist until the 90s, where it has enjoyed a popular rise through historical fiction and pop culture thanks mostly to Philippa Gregory's historical fiction novels and the subsequent adapted TV shows. The historical records obviously turn right after the Battle of Bosworth in August of 1485, after Richard is defeated and killed, and his nude body is then paraded around toward Leicester. Henry Tudor is crowned right there on the battlefield, thus launching the legendary reign of the Tudor dynasty. This is where we start to get a confident body of work spreading the nephew murderer theory. That same year, Guillaume de Rochefort, stands up in front of his French committee and announces that Richard III has murdered his nephews. The French, having a complicated history with England, ran with this. The French used it as a political lesson in an effort to support their own aims. People in France were unlikely to know for sure, but the rumor ran rampant across the continent during that period. We also have letters sent from Spain to England remarking on Richard murdering his nephews. John Rouse writes in 1486, a year after Richard III's defeat and death at Bosworth, that Richard usurped the throne and slaughtered his nephews, stating that he caused others to kill the holy man, or as many think, did so by his own hand. Most famously, William Shakespeare used Sir Thomas More's writings to base his historical plays on crafting the evil hunchback corrupt King Richard. More concludes specifically that the murdered young boys were buried beneath the tower at the bottom of a staircase, while his brother-in-law speculates they were stuffed into a chest and taken out, tossed into the River Thames. All of this ambiguity further emphasizes how no contemporaries at the time had the clarity that we are looking for today in the 21st century. More blatantly states in grave detail that the murder was carried out by Richard's order to his right-hand man, James Tyrrell, Richard III's master of the horse and who confessed to this, by the way, and that he was aided by two men and that the boys were suffocated to death and their bodies disposed of at the bottom of a flight of stairs, only later to be dug up and moved. Also, I'd like to note here that Moore did bring the benefit of his sharp legal mind, as well as his intellectual judgment, and there is little doubt that he went to great lengths to uncover the truth about the princes in the tower, whose fate was the central theme of his book. There is no evidence that he or his contemporaries considered the writing satirical, which it has been labeled by a modern historian or two. It was never Moore's intention to write Tudor propaganda, as he has been accused of again by a few modern scholars. Moore was never one to bend the truth to please others. Remember, this man lost his head because he simply wouldn't publicly endorse Henry VIII's divorce. Moore also had good reason to loathe Henry Tudor, who had imprisoned his father. Even Henry VIII held Moore close and at one point valued his opinion above all others because he knew it to be an honest one. With Moore, we can surmise that the truth always came first. 
Also, Moore's work on this book was never intended for publication and was written purely for recreation as per historian and author Alison Weir. Moore's work therefore has value in this argument because it is objective. He had no motive for lying, no desire to even attract attention by publicizing his work. He used a wide variety of resources and his father had been a keen political observer during Richard III's reign. Henry Tudor, after the Battle of Bosworth, known as Henry VII, in my opinion had no involvement. The summer of 1483 is the period we are looking at. We have no verified info or sightings of the princes after that summer. Richard ruled from June 1483 to August 1485. Right in the middle of his reign, the princes disappeared. The princes were sent into the tower. Richard orchestrated this. At this time, Henry Tudor was not even a visible or viable candidate to be the King of England. He was also physically in exile in France during that period. The earliest record is November 1483, right after the collapse of Lord Buckingham's rebellion, that anyone notions at the idea Henry Tudor could be a serious potential king. He wasn't even next in line. There were so many people ahead of him with claims to the throne. The main person in favor of Tudor as king was the young boy's own mother, Elizabeth Woodville. Why would she support Henry Tudor and want to pair her daughter with him in marriage if she thought he was a murderer? Richard III had already executed Elizabeth Woodville's older son and brother. She was a wise woman who had a skill for reading the room and knew exactly how to navigate the games of the royal court. Also something to know, while Elizabeth Woodville is in sanctuary, she meets with Beaufort and they reach a wise agreement. The only conceivable reason for this to have happened was Elizabeth had to have thought both of her boys were dead by that point, and they arranged for Beaufort's son, Henry Tudor, to marry her own daughter, also Elizabeth, big surprise, in an effort to bring together both conflicting families, Yorkists and Lancastrians, thus ending the Hundred Year War of the Roses, uniting both parties, resulting in an entirely new regime, and that is exactly what happens. We have to assume that Elizabeth has now lost her father, her brother, her eldest son, and now her two young boys, and that Richard will carry on. So any of the actions she is taking here are as a mother thinking about her remaining children, especially her eldest daughter. She is trying to save her children's fates as well as her own. So who else could have done it? Who else stood to gain? Who else had access to the Tower of London, other than Richard III? People who know about Russian history will know that after Ivan the Terrible and the period that followed, referred to as the Time of Troubles, there were people called False Dimitris. For reference, Dimitri was the youngest son of Ivan the Terrible who had died. These False Dimitris popped up claiming to be the dead heir. And one of these false Dimitris, one of these pretenders, actually ends up ruling Russia for a year or so. Imposters, pretenders, very common in history. But we see this happen with the princes in the tower, most famously with a kid named Perkin Warbeck, the pretender prince. But Warbeck was not actually young Prince Richard, but rather a Belgian 
who fooled Edward IV's sister, amongst others, and eventually was hanged at Tyburn. There was also Lambert Simnel, a ten-year-old boy used as a pawn by the Yorkists. However, he was pardoned after the rebellion and lived a relatively normal life after. On July 17, 1794, a wooden box containing two small skeletons was found under the rubble at the bottom of a staircase in the Tower of London while renovations were being done. The bones were immediately thought to be the two princes, and reigning king at that time, Charles II, ordered them reburied in Westminster Abbey. Transcribed from Latin, their grave marker read in part, Here lie the relics of Edward V, King of England, and Richard, Duke of York. Because of the history written by Sir Thomas More, it immediately became widely assumed that those were in fact the bodies of the two murdered boys. They were exhumed and re-examined in 1933 using advanced science and technology for the time, and while their incomplete skeletons, mixed with animal bones and unable to determine gender, scientists did confirm they were mostly made up of the remains of two different small children, who were likely blood-related. Most notably, the scientists confirmed that the elder skeleton was around 12, while the younger one fell between 9 and 11. Additionally, the elder child was found to have evidently suffered from bone disease in the lower jaw. Now Edward V was being treated by his doctor before he disappeared. So this further corroborates the idea that the bones are the princes. But it was 1933, and no DNA testing was available at the time, as it is today, to provide the ultimate definitive yes or no that genetics testing does offer. Fast forward to the modern-day 21st century, and Queen Elizabeth II, prior to her death in September of 2022, refused on multiple occasions to have the skeletons again exhumed and re-examined. This is understandable considering the Queen had several of her own relatives buried nearby at Westminster Abbey. To allow for this exhumation, would it set a precedent for all the other royal mysteries? Do we just go digging up the bodies of human beings in an effort to cure our own morbid curiosity? Personally, though, now that her son, King Charles III, is the King of England, I'm hoping this can be revisited. He's always expressed a deep passion for English history and has stated he would be open to having the skeletons examined. So we'll see where that leads and if it happens. Philippa Langley, a Ricardian who most notably spearheaded the Richard III archaeological project and ultimately found him under a parking lot in Leicester, has founded a second mission aptly titled The Missing Princess Project where she, like previously with Richard III, wants to find the skeletons, to further exonerate her beloved Richard III, of course. At the core of this project, led by John Dyke, lies a thesis that the young prince was sent away by his uncle, where he laid low in Devon, brokered in a secret deal reached between his mother Elizabeth Woodville, Richard III, and later with Henry Tudor. This, as per John Dyke, of course. But let's address the implausibility here. We've got two incredibly ruthless men, Richard and Henry Tudor, who have long track records of executing their enemies, which is why either of them claim the throne in the first place. 
The idea that they would agree a deal to allow their biggest threat and rival to go and live a low-key life on the English coast for the rest of his life? Well, stranger things have happened, I suppose. So why are we still interested in the disappearance of the princes of the tower? Well, there are two young and innocent boys, now famously tied to that painting. There's also a romantic element attached to the idea of the last Plantagenet king, Richard III. This notion that the medieval period comes to a crashing end at the Battle of Bosworth, making way for the enlightened early renaissance of the Tudors. The age of dashing knights and noblemen is suddenly over, and it's replaced by a miserable penny-pincher in Henry VII and then his wild and rowdy son Henry VIII. The Ricardians romanticize Richard, he's this pious religious guy from the north, and there's this urge to find him innocent. There's this urge that you'll be the first person to discover the key to this history. It's also in alignment with the whole Shakespeare authorship conspiracy theory, which is frankly deserving of an entire episode within itself. Don't even get me started. But the idea that suddenly a small group of people think they have insight no one else has realized and are asking new questions no one was smart enough to consider prior? With the Shakespeare authorship conspiracy theory, we have anti-Stratfordians, I refer to them as anti-Shakespeareans, wanting to discredit Will from Stratford-upon-Avon, and claim that they have the answer to who really wrote his material. Was he actually the Earl of Oxford? Or whatever. The idea that Shakespeare is either a fraud who is taking credit for something that belongs to an aristocrat, or that he's just a pseudonym, all of this is just hostility to the received wisdom in general. And Shakespeare, who is widely considered the greatest writer, I myself am included in that consensus. But I find there's this collective pleasure in knocking him down. We see the same thing in Sir Thomas More's legacy as well. Both he and Shakespeare are alike in this regard. In the Daughter of Time novel, More is villainized and again in contemporary times by Hilary Mantel. There is this collective pleasure that seems to exist in our society to sort of bring down these historical, godlike, martyrish figures that I think both of these very real and flawed, albeit extraordinary men, are primary targets for. Richard has obviously been unlucky to receive such a harsh reputation from Shakespeare through his famous playwriting, and for years and years advocates for him swore he was nothing like those depictions, and historically speaking, he isn't in many ways. But only a decade ago, when his body was unearthed under a carport in Leicester in the project spearheaded by Langley, and a skeleton examined by 21st century technology, did we discover that yes, indeed, Richard III did in fact have severe scoliosis of the spine, causing a visible difference in posture. Just one specific element Shakespeare wrote about that was long disputed by his advocates. So, who really knows about the rest? So, to summarize this story, in the brutal reality of the end of medieval England, what choices did Richard III really have? Should he keep up with these brutal acts of violence or lose the game? What would you do in that reality? 
it's hard to have a realistic perspective from a 21st century lens, but it is a question worth pondering. But Richard III could have made very, very different decisions. We could have had a Plantagenet regime, a Yorkist regime. There could have been no tutors, no break with Rome and great Protestant reform in the mid-16th century. The whole world, especially that of England, would have been different. Some might argue, if not for these two young princes in the tower. I do think Richard III is a tragic figure, and not necessarily for the theatrical reasons Shakespeare writes him to be. But he's a man who, perhaps for reasons he's unable to control, destroys himself, his family, and his regime. And he loses in the end. Whatever the result, the two princes in the tower likely never left, and their bones likely lay underneath the rebuilt tower floors, hopefully to one day be re-examined and definitively identified. Only time will tell, and we may just never know. And I think that is part of the appeal of this 500-year-old mystery. It's better to think of 15th century kings as 20th century mafia dons rather than Prince William, Catherine, or Harry of today. Their politics were brutal and people died gruesome deaths. But it was just business, nothing personal. Leave the gun, take the cannoli. You've just heard Off With Her Head, a history podcast, written, produced, researched, and edited by yours truly, that's me, Anne Berkstead. Find us on Apple Podcasts or Hear Luminary, and if you like the show, please rate us, leave a five-star review, share it, tell your friends, it really helps get the word out. Until next time. Mm-hmm.